Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Kelly, broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We have a great show for you today, and uh, we have a gentleman who we could just spend almost the entire show talking about his resume. Um, He has been uh, a globally recognized leader and expert on cybersecurity, and up until recently have been the nation's top cyber diplomat. Um, We have with us Christopher Painter. Um, Christopher, can you hear us? Yep, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. And so we 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 have Christopher on a day when um, there are a lot of people in Washington on a – answering questions on a hot seat, whether it be um, Judge Kavanaugh and the Senate Judiciary Committee for confirmation hearings, and we have hearings go on to this morning with uh, um, Facebook and Twitter and both the Senate and the House side. So um, Judge, uh, Mr. Painter has a, uh, I guess this will be a much friendlier environment than the <laughs> other two, but we're really glad to have you. and. Um, Judge, um, I keep wanting to say in judge, um, Christopher Painter, can you just give us a little background about your experience with the government? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I was in the government doing cyber things for about 27 years. I started uh, doing that as a federal prosecutor out in Los Angeles, actually. I lived just north of Santa Monica and, and um, uh, near the old Getty Museum, so I miss it dearly. Uh, I was a federal We're prosecutor. We're going to a play there on Saturday. Uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I had I, there. I had a view of the ocean. Here, I have a view of a tree. So it's not quite <laughs> not quite as romantic. Um, but I, you know, as a federal prosecutor out there, and very early on, so I went out there in uh, in 1991, 
And uh, I'd already been interested in computers um, and really got involved in doing some of the first of the kind uh, cyber cases there. Uh, Kevin Mitnick, who's a well-known computer hacker criminal at the time, uh, the first couple of internet stock manipulation cases, one of the big denial of service cases. Uh, then, then I moved uh, from LA back to DC, back to the mothership of justice, the Justice Department, and helped run the computer crime intellectual property section. Uh, went to the FBI as a deputy assistant director of their cyber division for uh, about eight months before going over to the National Security Council at the White House uh, in the beginning of Obama's term to create uh, the cyber directorate there and their international strategy for cyberspace, among other things. And then went to the State Department uh, as, as you mentioned, the first uh, cyber diplomat, uh, a post that didn't really exist anywhere in the world then, but then uh, was replicated by about 25 other countries and growing around the world. So, so uh, and then left the uh, tepid embrace of the federal government back in uh, November. <laughs> and <laughs> now, you, when you were in the Justice Department at CSIP, um, was that the, the, the dawn of CSIP? Were you part of the original team or, or close to it? Well, I, I went there when it's still pretty small and it grew uh, dramatically, but I certainly worked with those guys when I was in L.A. So when I was doing cybercrime cases in L.A., CSIPS, the Computer Crime Intellectual Property section, back then it was a unit, uh, was uh, sort of our touchstone uh, to work with from the field and it was one of the part of the original uh, network of computer crime prosecutors around the country that CSIPS helped set up. So I worked very closely with them, and so it was natural for me to go back there several years later. And so you, you've got into uh, diplomacy as the, the cyber diplomat. Well, first you were in the National Security yeah. um, Council with the White House, yeah. and that was under Obama, right? Right, and uh, you know, all these had international elements. So you know, obviously I was in the government of justice and the White House and, and the State Department through a number of administrations. Um, uh, both Republican and Democrat. And and one thing I found is that generally these issues were fairly nonpartisan, ones where uh, both sides really took them seriously. You know, certainly saw an evolution over those years of them evolving from what was seen as a technical issue to really more of a policy issue, which was important uh, that, that the, you know, the cabinet secretaries and others would start grappling with. That wasn't true, certainly in the beginning. Um, but, you know, saw a range of different administrations on both sides during my federal career. And when in working as the cyber diplomat, well, uh, we talked offline about some of the things you did. One of them was uh, negotiating with China on yeah. theft you know, theft of IP through hacking. Yeah. So, I mean, when my office was set up, it was really meant to, to cover a wide range of issues. I mean, everything from the kind of hard international security issues like uh, you know how do you how do you deal with and avoid cyber conflict how do you build a, a normative structure uh, that creates some rules in cyberspace for states uh, through the cyber crime cyber security um, uh, human rights online like internet freedom and internet governance issues so really because they're all somewhat interrelated we did all of them uh, with China you know I actually led a dialogue a cyber dialogue with China until it was canceled by the Chinese uh, at one point. <laughs> because even though certainly China and the U.S. do not see uh, eye to eye on many things, including human rights online, including the idea of internet governance and what the state should be able to control uh, and not in cyberspace, uh, it was important to have a dialogue with them and discuss these issues. Um, 
uh, you know, the theft of intellectual property issue had been a growing and big issue in the U.S. because it affected not just economic interests, but security interests, and really the long-term lifeblood of our, our country. Um, so this is something that was a big issue for the U.S. Uh, it was a real concern in terms of Chinese behavior. Uh, you may remember when the U.S. Justice Department indicted five uh, PLA yes. for this. That's when the Chinese broke off our, our, uh, <laughs> our working group. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I thought that was an unfortunate move because that was, you know, uh, whatever they thought of that, you need to have this, these discussions about these issues. But I think the most significant thing was over the course of really over a year and a half, um, the president, the national security advisor, the attorney general, the, the secretary of state, everyone in lockstep continued to raise these issues with the Chinese at a high level, say this was a, a huge issue for the U.S., both economically and as a national security issue. It was such a big issue that this wasn't just a cyber issue. I mean, one of the problems, I think, with cyber is people buttonhole this a little bit and think it's a technical issue and don't give it really the prominence it deserves. But the decision was made here, this is something that's so significant that we're going to take uh, a hit and tension in the overall relationship with China, which, which, as you know, the relationship between the U.S. and China is multivaried in economic terms and, and, and really across the board. Right. So... To raise this cyber issue is one that was really a sticking point in the overall relationship was significant. To have that consistent high-level messaging from the top was significant. And, and then just uh, on the eve of President Xi coming to the U.S. for a major summit, um, the Chinese came to the table uh, and really we negotiated literally all night uh, to reach a, a, an agreement where they agreed that, well, both countries agreed that that kind of uh, behavior was off limits. The theft of intellectual property to benefit your commercial sector is something that the U.S. doesn't do. We don't think any country should do. The Chinese agreed with that. That was really a major thing, but because before that, the Chinese said there was no distinction between the kind of intelligence gathering that every country does and this theft of intellectual property. And they also said we don't do either, which was just, you know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so... So to get them to agree there was a distinction, and in fact that they were to agree not to do the, 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 the latter, the theft of intellectual property, was significant. And not too long after that, that was then enshrined as a agreement in the G20. So the G20 most um, affluent countries, um, economically affluent countries, agreed to that. And there were then bilateral agreements with the UK, with Germany, um, and with Australia. So, you know, I think that was really important, and it showed that that kind of high-level diplomatic pressure. And frankly, there was a story that there was the possibility of sanctions being imposed on the Chinese under the cyber sanctions order that had not been used yet, but it had been passed about eight months before, or not passed, but uh, issued by the president, uh, I think uh, was significant in bringing them to the table. So, you know, I think that was a significant milestone. And, and a lot of the outside observers said that they um, significantly cut down on their behavior. I wasn't born down born yesterday, so I didn't expect everything to stop. <laughs> and certainly other kinds of computer activity did not cease, but it was important to, to deal with that one. And this this is a major achievement, um, yeah, but I, it's, I, it's kind of below, below the radar, literally. And I, I, I think it was significant at the time because it was so, there was so much attention on this. I mean, if you go back to that period, there was a lot of congressional attention, there was a lot of newspaper stories about this, it, it was a big deal. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure it got, you know, I think a lot of people were somewhat skeptical when it was agreed to. I think it was interesting to see the tracking of a lot of the computer security companies who said, yeah, we've seen, you know, a diminution. 
part of that may well be due to this agreement. Part of this is maybe they have better trade craft now. You know? True. <laughs> it's hard That's to tell. It could be, yeah. yeah. Is it, but can you, is, has anyone attempted to translate what that means in economic terms? I don't know that they have, but you know, if you look at the various estimates before this agreement re was reached, I mean, the estimates varied widely, but you know, uh, it, it was really huge amounts of prospective losses. You had, you know, had some people uh, who, you know, <laughs> really hit the high end. I think uh, General Alexander, when he was the head of Cyber Command, said it was the greatest theft of. Uh, uh, you know, in, in the history of uh, humanity, which I think I, re I recall perhaps, that, yeah, perhaps a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> so, but, but you know, it was a significant thing. It, you know, in our view, you know, this is something that goes to your future. It's not just the things that are being stolen now, but the fact that they can used and it hurts innovation. You know, there's certainly arguments on the other side that you know, if the U.S. because the U.S. innovates very quickly, if, if uh, another country steals the secrets, by the time they operationalize them, we're on to the next level. There's that argument, but at the same time, they get a head start from that. So, so it was significant to do that. And the other thing that was important about the agreement is it kind of set a global norm that this kind of thing is not acceptable. And that, we've done a lot of work on global norms in other um, other areas, more political military areas, not attacking certs or, or uh, right. infrastructure. But but I thought it was a very significant move. And and one of the things it demonstrated to me was the importance of that high level consistent messaging that that you know just says this is important because you know if, if at any point you know we if we, as say obama had raised this as he did in sunny lands during their first summit right and did not continue to raise it after that the chinese quite frankly would have said well you know they raised it big deal they're over it we'll move on right but if, if you need consistent messaging to say this is important you know this really is something we care about uh and that that in any if you're trying to shape uh if frenemy or a potential adversary's behavior and you're, you're concerned about what they're doing, you have to be consistent. You have to use the tools that you have, but you also have to be consistent in the message you're delivering both to them and to your allies. Which, which kind of brings me to my next question in that you, you have this long extended career in the government and you know, as you reached your, your, your pinnacle, um, it's right at a time where you know the cyber element of you know, policy is really getting a lot of prominence. You know, it's you're, you're, do, you're getting the attention of the president, um, world leaders, and then you leave. <laughs> and shortly after you leave, the State Department eliminates the role of cyber coordinator, and then just recently, uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton eliminated the similar position at the National Security Council. Um, yeah, I, look, I, I think that's incredibly problematic. I mean, for two reasons. One, you're right. We had a lot of momentum in terms of what we we're doing in the State Department. It doesn't mean that they're not doing anything anymore. There are, there are good people who are still there. A lot of my old team is still there, and, and that's that's great. And they're, they're working on these issues, and I think that's really important and good. Um, you know, I think people throughout the government are doing good work. But what happens is when you demote the office um, and you, you, you send the signal, this is not a priority for us anymore. Even though we created this whole idea of cyber diplomacy, even though we had all these countries, including, you know, adversarial countries like like Russia following our lead and creating our right. and, their, uh, and their foreign ministries to step back, it does two things. One, for our allies and our partners, 
and the people we're trying to woo over to our side, it sends the message this doesn't this not you know, we're not gonna lead. This doesn't matter anymore. And to right. our adversaries, it, it really sends a message that this is a time where they can redouble their efforts to try to seize control, to try to win over especially those countries who are on the fence. And there, and there are a number of countries that are. Uh, it's important for us to, to work with. Um, so that absence of U.S. leadership, I think, is a, is a real problem. And then you, you take it to the White House level. Uh, you know, I think it, it was really critical to have that cyber coordinator role. When I went first to the White House, I was part of the cyberspace uh, review team where we uh, recommended having a high-level official in the White House. It was important to have that role. That role really uh, helped uh, not only herd all the cats in the interagency uh, who you know, wanted to pull together, but they have different perspectives, so it's important to do that, but also had a significant role working internationally to try to convince countries, for instance, to join us on some of the attributions that were made even during this administration um, uh, about uh, you know, some of the major cyber attacks like NotPetya and, and WannaCry. So right. not having that leadership position in either place, I think, sends the wrong message. There's, there's been a lot of talk recently about reestablishing my old office. I think that'd be great. It's now been over a year, so you know, time, you know, the clock is ticking. Uh, there's been legislation that's passed the House and through the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee, which is important, so that would do the same thing. Um, so I, I think you, you know I think we really need to step up and look. Structure is not everything, right? You know you can you can, there's lots of different ways to um, to structure yourself. There's no magic bullet, but the key thing is to show this is a key priority uh, for the administration. This is something we really care about. We made a lot of progress, which I fear uh, we're we're losing because of the moves that have been made. I saw some comment say that especially in light of the you know the the Russian interference in the 2016 election, that it was akin to the State Department closing its Japan office after after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, and yeah, it may be an overstatement, but you know, it's it, on that scale. It, it was it was truly kind of remarkably short-sighted, I thought. And and you know, the I the reason given was that they were trying to streamline. They didn't like all these, I reported directly to the Secretary of State. They didn't like all these special envoys who reported directly. And they were trying to streamline the department. Well, you know, that's a laudable goal, I suppose. But you also have to figure out what your priorities are and what the structure is. Um, and given the Russian interference, if anything, you'd want to double the priority. <laughs> you, want to, you want to increase the priority, but not reduce the priority. Uh, you know, an interesting story. I'm not conspiratorial. and I don't believe in any way this is connected. But it was just an interesting coincidence is when they were telling me that the office was going to be sort of downgraded. Uh, it was the exact time that uh, Trump was meeting with Putin at the G20. <laughs> so, oh, I think that had nothing. To be frank, I think that had nothing to do with it because I think uh, you know it was just a short-sighted, short-sighted sense that we just need to, to streamline. And I really don't think when they made that decision, they understood the importance of this issue. Uh, there was a lot of outcry after that, but even by Republicans on the Hill. But I don't think they grasped it at the time. I don't think the Tillerson team really understood it. So we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the U.S. cyber leadership role in diplomacy today. We're talking to Christopher Painter and more after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
Content Marketing World 2018 comes to Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Learn more at contentmarketingworld.com. Content Marketing World 2018 is the one event where you will learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry. Content Marketing World will have over 120 sessions and workshops presented by the leading brand marketers and experts from around the world covering strategy, storytelling, ROI, demand generation, AI, and more. Leave Cleveland with all the materials you need to build a content marketing plan that will grow your business and inspire your audience. Save $100 off of registration using promo code RADIO100. That's radio and the number 100. Don't miss Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Register now at contentmarketingworld.com. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. It's time once again to get ready for the 35th Annual Miami Book Fair, November 11th through the 18th. Learn more at MiamiBookFair.com. Over 500 authors will be coming in from all over the world to read their books, answer questions from the audience, and sign autographs. Award-winning luminaries confirmed to attend this year include novelists like Elliot Ackerman, Robert Olin Butler, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and Deborah Dean. Nonfiction writers like Dr. Mark Agronin, Mohammed Al-Samwawi, Andrea Barnett, and Tina Brown. Celebrities like Justine Bates. Steve Kornacki, Bill Press. These are just a few of the confirmed 500 authors scheduled to appear at the 2018 Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Check out the full schedule of events right now at MiamiBookFair.com. That's MiamiBookFair.com. WebmasterRadio.fm. Take your hat off, kick your feet up, and log into the feed. We're here for you 24-7. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Christopher Painter, who was the top cyber diplomat for the U.S. for a number of years. And before the break, we were talking about the kind of demotion or, I guess, de-emphasis of the offices of, of cyber diplomacy, both within the State Department and the National Security Council. And uh, Christopher, what's, what was the reaction to, I guess, our allies um, or, or, or your counterparts and to that, those actions? Well, I, I, I heard a range of reactions. I mean, most of them were bewildered, frankly. They didn't understand why, as you said, particularly given the, if anything, the increased threat from Russia and others. Uh, that we were de-emphasizing this or not giving the priority or resources to it. Uh, I heard similar things when the White House office was was dissolved as well. Uh, and, and you know, I think uh, a lot of, as these are this is really a startup area, right? A lot of countries have done this, so they were saying, well, you know, does this mean the U.S. isn't going to lead? Uh, you know, we're going to have to step in. Uh, you know, I certainly saw the Chinese and Russians becoming more aggressive. I think that was going to happen anyway, but but it allowed them some opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some cases, I think one of the the issues uh, one of the issues that that came up was that 
you know, some countries were asking, well, we have prioritized this area in part because the U.S. did. If the U.S. is not doing it, what does that mean for us? Should we rethink that? Which is the absolutely mm-hmm. wrong, <laughs> right? Wrong way to look at it. So, so I think things are stabilized now. I mean, if anything, more countries are continually to add. Just, uh, just today, for instance, um, I think it was today, Estonia announced that a good friend of mine who's been working at the EU, Heli Timar Klar, is their new cyber ambassador, which is great. Uh, Estonia, or as they call it sometimes, Estonia, has been at the cutting edge of a lot of these. Oh, issues. very, yeah. Um, and so very that's connected. great. Australia has an ambassador, uh, France and others. I mean, I think more and more countries are, are seeing why this is an important area and, and really raising this above a technical level. But yeah, I think there was a lot of uh, consternation and, and bewilderment of what this meant. Does this mean the U.S. is stepping back and what that meant in the long term, given the, the importance of these issues? We spent a lot of time convincing people this is not a technical issue that they should run away from, that you didn't need to be a, a technologist to understand cyber, that these were core issues of national security and economic security and human rights and really foreign policy. Um, and it's, it just it just came at a bad time. Is it fair to say that um, cybersecurity just is not going to get a priority in this administration because the Trump administration views that anything approaching uh you know, cyber attacks is a way to bring up Russia and try to delegitimize, delegitimize this president? Well, I, you know, I think it depends. I think, again, you have some real strong people in the administration who care deeply about this and understand the importance of this. You have you had some good you know, language coming out of the administration. The national security uh, strategy talks about imposing swift and, um, and sure consequences on bad actors. It has some really good language in it. You had under before the cyber coordinator's position was uh, abrogated at the White House, you had uh, a number of things where, for instance, um, the big not petty at worm was right. uh, attributed back to Russia. It was not just done by the U.S. by number, but by a number of countries. The collective, uh, you know, uh, collective attribution, which was good. You had the same thing with North Korea and WannaCry. Those were all good things. But the, the real problem is um, that that has to be coupled with consistent level messaging. So if you, you know, first of all, you're not going to name and shame Russia or North Korea. Uh, China cares about soft power, I think. Uh, Russia, at least in Russia's current state, and North Korea really don't. And so naming and shaming and attribution is good, but you have to follow through by actually imposing consequences. And to be sure, there have been some sanctions that have been imposed. I would argue not really effectively enough. But what really is the problem uh, is that Whatever you're doing, whatever your people are doing, whatever your agencies, DHS and DOD and state and others are doing in justice, um, if you don't have that consistent messaging from the top, from the president, if that undercuts your messaging, that really means almost all your work is for naught. And you know, a great example of that was when you had all the senior people gathered in the, the, the White House talking about election interference, and that very night, uh, the president called into question whether the Russians actually did it. Right, it could have been China, it could have been, yeah. Yeah, and that you know that fundamentally undercuts the message. What worked with China, I think, is the, the consistent high-level messaging that was reinforced by the other activities from the rest of the government. Uh, and, and I think you also are right. I think that uh, in the sense that, especially with Russia, uh, when Russia comes up, I think there is a, there is a tendency, you know, when you mention cyber, that gets coded by the president as Russia, and because apparently he views that as, as an attack on his legitimacy, uh, he takes these, these stances that are rarely uh, unhelpful 
to to the kind of deterrent effect we need to have. Now, deterrence is hard anyway in cyberspace. We don't need to make it harder by sending mis mixed messages. Uh, and if I'm Putin and I look at this and I say, you know, this I, there are no real costs for me to do this. So as long as I'm getting a benefit, why the hell not? Right. Uh, that's the antithesis of deterrence. That's creating a norm of uh, of inaction, and we really can't afford to do that. I mean, I think the the Secretary of Homeland Security just said guaranteed that the Russians will be involved in this election since, you know, their last investment was so successful. Yeah, absolutely. You've had you heard Kirsten Nielsen even today, I think, and in, uh, in testimony talk about she's worried about a cyber pandemic. You have you have a number of. Uh, Folks throughout the administration uh, and and career people saying this is this is a big issue in terms of both the technical threats like NotPetya et cetera, but also in terms of continued interference in our electoral system, which in in many ways is just as bad as if someone attacked our power infrastructure or our um, our financial system, the things we've traditionally been worried about in the cyber realm. So, uh, you know, <laughs> we can't we can't. We can't let this be a, a low priority for four years. We're going to get eaten alive if we do that. Now, you recently testified before the Senate Commerce Committee and outlined a number of threat areas or challenge areas for U.S. cyber policy. And I preface that by noting that throughout the, the early phase of the Internet and even up until recently, the, the U.S. has played a leadership role in developing kind of the global internet system. And you know, from the ICAM multi-stakeholder model to just um, general policy. And um, as you, we go through some of these issues, it seems that um, one, there's, there's a growing uh, challenge to US leadership. And it, secondly, it doesn't seem that the that challenge is always being met. And uh, I guess why don't we just start with the the issue of the multi-stakeholder internet governance? Uh, and we actually did a show after the uh, the that whole ITU convention a few years back, yeah. when there was a push for the UN to take over uh, control of the internet away from ICANN, and um, and I understand that the Trump administration actually is thinking about uh, revoking the seating uh, of authority to ICANN. And where do you see us at, at this point on that issue? Well, look, I think I think the multi-stakeholder institutions that the U.S. helped foster, frankly, ICANN is one of them. Uh, Internet Engineering Task Force is another. Uh, you know, there are a number of the the uh, Internet societies and other. These these are important institutions because unlike um, governmental structures, they do bring into uh, play the private sector and civil society uh, and, and really beyond governments. And the reason the internet has thrived and has become the incredible force for both social and economic good that it has been, with problems to be sure, uh, has been because of that system of governance. If it was run by governments, if we continued, the U.S. continued to run it just as the ARPANET, or it was run by the UN, we have a far different internet than we have now. One, I think, right. would be far less robust, and it would also be, uh, there'd be constant uh, uh, attempts by countries like Russia and China and others uh, to really control content on the internet, to really block the free flow of information, which is which is worrisome. So so the, the threat hasn't gone away. We're, we're, those countries uh, have you know very much thought about 
the structure they prefer. And the structure they prefer is uh, for governments alone to be governing the internet. Uh, they want a, a not a multi-stakeholder, but really a multilateral system. Uh, and the problem with that is not just the vibrancy and growth of the internet and the innovation, uh, but it, it really does serve as a proxy for these countries who want to draw borders around their sovereign borders around their own country on the internet, want to control information. They view information itself as destabilizing. Uh, and that would just fundamentally change the character and, and value of the internet. So we need to continue to push back against that. We've been successful so far. To be sure, these multi-stakeholder institutions can be strengthened. You need to have better participation, especially by uh, smaller countries. Uh, a lot of countries are now just getting major internet connectivity in, in sub-Saharan Africa and other places for the first time. And they're grappling with these issues. And, and you know, China and Russia are certainly engaging with those countries who like the idea of stability, but also like the idea of growth. Uh, and you know, if we don't do the, if we don't get in there, work with those countries, do the kind of capacity building that helps them build their systems, work with our European and other allies, um, that's going to be a continued challenge. So it's gone a little bit underground since a couple of years ago, but there's another ITU plenipotentiary meeting coming up uh, soon this fall, uh, where these issues will be raised again and issues around cybersecurity will be raised again. Uh, it really hasn't gone away, <laughs> and and we you know we've seen this on a number of fronts, including um, not everything from governance to cybercrime, where uh, the Russians are now pushing very hard for a cybercrime convention in the UN, which again is uh, a proxy for uh, state sovereignty in part and controlling content, dealing with things they call cyber terrorism. So th those threats are very, very much there. I hadn't heard that the U.S. is you know, thinking of pulling out of ICANN, that'd be a huge mistake. <laughs> well, they, I think they they, they did a, you know, the, the, the Administrative Procedure Act thing, they, they did a request for comment. And yeah. so yeah. that's usually the first step in reconsidering um, what I, I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised if that happened because, you know, there was this big debate around uh, ICANN uh, transferring, the Department of Commerce transferring some of its authority Right. Um, it's really ministerial authority to ICANN's multi-stakeholder system. There were some in the Senate uh, who were very much against that. I think that's worked pretty well, uh, both from a technical perspective, uh, but also it took the wind out of the sails of countries like China and Russia who were trying to impose this more state system when we were exactly. Saying, well, you know, we, we think the system, we believe in the system and we're going to, we're going to show we believe in it by transferring this message of control. So, um, I'd be surprised if, if the U.S. pulls back from that position. So an, another issue you highlighted is ensuring freedom of expression and human rights online. And yeah. um, where do you think we are on that? And, and what is the, how is the U.S. today promoting that, if at all? And well, I, know, I, I noticed, for example, um, you know, we've been downgraded as yeah. a, a place for press freedom, and partly in, in because of the attacks on the press here, mainly by our president. I look that. I think that's that's very troubling. I think you know you you can't have a consistent consistent attacks on the media and the free press, and that doesn't have an effect both in the U.S. but also elsewhere. I mean, it emboldens um, it emboldens dictators in other countries who are yeah, Duarte, Erdogan. Yeah. We're constantly complaining about any kind of dissent, and you know the, re the the kind of content the Chinese and Russians don't like is is not you know content that's malicious. It's content that they feel is undermining their security in the sense of criticizing them. So 
So it, it, it sends a really, really bad message that you know, we have this, this constant barrage on the press, certainly. Um, the other challenge is that if you look at the Freedom House compilation of you know, countries, uh, Freedom Online, that has gone down globally in the last few years. Right. That's troubling, too. Uh, and there are more repressive regimes who are using technology. You, know, you can look at technology in the positive sense. The State Department still funds a lot of uh, groups to get around censorship. That's great. Uh, there's a lot of grants, et cetera. We're part of something called the Freedom Online Coalition. That's important. But at the same time, regimes are also using some of those cyber tools to monitor their citizens and, and, and try to uh, you know, enforce their their censorship, and that's really troubling too. So, so using a, a lot of American companies. Well, use, just using the technology generally. I mean, using yeah. the technology is often dual use. Right. So they're using technology it, is neutral. Yeah, technology is neutral. It's how you use it. Most technology is neutral, at least. And so, so that's you know, I think that's that's really troubling too. The thing that we have to do is, the thing we used to do at least, is we would bring up the human rights dimension, the freedom online dimension, even when we were talking about cybersecurity. So when we had dialogues with other countries, particularly countries who were developing cyber strategies, becoming more cyber aware, we said, we asked, you have to think about the human rights dimension too. You have to involve these other stakeholders in coming up with those. And that was part of our policy. If we get away from that, and we don't emphasize that as part of our policy, I think that uh, that's a problem, and it also gives a green light to more repressive regimes to to push for, further on that. So that's got to be a, a major plank in our program. But I quite agree that the messaging coming out that attacks the press does not help us globally. Right. Now, we um, recently did a show. We had lawyers for the Saudi blogger Rafe Badawi on. And uh, so we've kind of been following what's going on in Saudi Arabia closely. And apparently the news today is um, you can be subject, I think it's like five years imprisonment for um, satire online that criticizes the government. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that story. Uh, uh, we, did you engage at all uh, in Saudi Arabia, or would it be just because of their kind of significant you know, geopolitical status, they were kind of off limits? They, they weren't off limits. I mean, we raised these issues, and there were folks in our democracy and human rights uh, department, our, our bureau at state, um, actually led by an uh, individual now who's running for Congress in New Jersey, Tom Malinowski, uh, but other folks before him uh, who were quite good and pushing those dialogues, even with countries who didn't want to hear it, frankly, um, which, which you need to do. Um, now, you know, uh, you're right, there's a, lot of, you know, there's a lot of dependence on Saudi for any terrorism or other things, but, but I think it's important, even in those cases, to make sure you raise that. And the other places that a lot of the Middle Eastern countries and Saudi Arabia and others have been somewhat problematic is they also like the idea of more control over the internet too. Right. <laughs> so uh, it's like it's like everything else in diplomacy. There are some countries, you know, with countries you might you have complex relationships. You agree with them on some things, you disagree on others, but you should never be afraid of raising it with them. Well, one thing I'm never afraid to do is take a break when my producer tells me to. So we'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for its 7th Annual International Mobile Web Award Competition. This award program is an opportunity for mobile developers to demonstrate their expertise in this growing medium. It recognizes the individual and team achievements of web professionals all over the world who create and maintain outstanding responsive and mobile websites and mobile applications. Deadline for entry is September 28, 2018. Submit your entry today at www.mobile-webaward.org. That's mobile-webaward.org. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs sends you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. A more refreshing kind of talk radio. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking to Christopher Painter. And just for background, our show notes, as usual, are on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. In addition, you can follow the Internet Law Center. Um, we're at internetlawcenter.net, and uh, we're a full-service internet firm. So we're talking to Christopher about kind of the state of U.S. leadership on cyber issues. And one thing I, I think I'd just like to go back on, you know, the, the, the impact of inconsistent messages. What does that do in terms of our ability to deter further cyber attacks? Yeah, I think, first of all, I should say, you can follow me on Twitter, too, at C underscore Painter. And the interesting about that is I try to uh, post one movie poster that deals with cyber uh, one one a week. I'm down to 44 now. so I like I like this week's. <laughs> this week was good. <laughs> Sometimes I try to link them to events like her during Valentine's Day I thought was good. but Well, you um, know, I guess working space was that for Labor Day? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, office space. I'm sorry, office, office space. space. Yeah, which yeah. is which is a great one. A class. Um, so, in, in any event, yeah. Look, I think I think you know if you're going to have a deterrent, you know, part of deterrence is different aspects of deterrence. One is hardening the targets. Yeah, we should do that, but we haven't done a great job of doing that. But we need to do that. That's basic. That's foundational. But uh, but two is if someone does something, there have to be consequences for their actions. So. In the physical world, if you lock the windows and doors, great, but if someone breaks in and there's no consequences for them, they're just going to come back and do it again and bring their friends. And so what we've done in cyberspace is I think we've been very 
ineffectual at really imposing those costs on especially bad state actors. Criminals, yeah, I think we're, we're, you know, we're, we're certainly strengthening the criminal law. We're getting other countries to join the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime, trying to help enforcement. That's great. But when you have, for instance, Russia doing some of the activities they've done with NotPetya, but also with election interference, and the consequences aren't that, you know, there really aren't consequences or they're, they're pretty minimal. Right. Uh, and even when they're imposed, like sanctions, there's talk about rescinding some of the sanctions, uh, you know, because uh, of various reasons, which sends the wrong message. But then, you know, again, I'm going, I go back to this messaging point is that you have to couple that with consistent messaging. And when you undercut that, by saying that you don't think they did it, or you know, or you don't want to do anything about it, or you know, you undercut the actions you're taking. If I'm the recipient of that, my response is, okay, they're not serious. They don't care about this. I'm happy. To, <laughs> I'm happy to do this again. And then the other aspect is, you know, you're more effective. You know, look, if you have the flaming ball of cyber death coming toward you, and you have to take action, you will as a country. Uh, but if you can collectively take action, like we did with some of these attributions with other countries, even if they're a smaller subset of countries, that makes it stronger and more legitimate. So if you're trying to convince other countries to take actions with you and you yourself are bad at doing that or undercut your own message, that makes hard, it hard to build those alliances, which I think are critical to enforcing these rules, these norms on the internet that will make us all safer in the long term. It becomes more of a wild, wild west if there are no consequences for actors, and then you just don't have the Russians acting. You have other countries who say, hey, look, it worked for them. Why won't we do this too? So basically with the sheriff nap- napping, all, you know, all the banks are in danger, in, yeah, metaphorically. Yeah, and look, the, right. And, but, you know, all the banks are in danger, but our banks are in danger. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, we, we, our banks, our political system, you know, everything, yeah. Yeah, so we, you know, look, I'm not saying this is easy. There are issues around... You know, people don't really understand what escalation looks like in cyberspace. I don't think you necessarily respond to a cyber attack using cyber tools. I think it's important that we have those capabilities uh, you know, that Cyber Command and others are developing. I think it's important we do that. But at the same time, I think we should use those in a strategic way, just like we do in the physical world. We need to integrate all of our tools together. We need to figure out what the best tool is for the job. But we need to use them. And we need to, you know, we need to... You know, if we're worried about escalation, one way to get around that is to actually message to the adversary saying, we are doing X to you. And when you stop, we'll stop doing X to you. Right. <laughs> we don't really do that either. Uh, sanctions have been one avenue, uh, but, you know, you also want to target the sanctions in a way they're going to change the the adversary's behavior. And I don't think we've done that. There was a Defense Sciences Board report that was issued uh, a while ago that talked about having tailored tailored plans for each potential adversary because different things are going to matter to different right. countries out there. There's a lot more we need to be doing. But I mean, I'm, I, don't, I don't know if it was on the or off the air, but in terms of working with China, you know, the threat of sanctions got their attention. Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I think I think the combination of they had a summit that was coming up and, and more than anything else, they really wanted that summit to go smoothly. They did not want the theft of intellectual property issue to even be raised publicly. Now, that wasn't going to happen because it was such a big issue, it had to be raised. Uh, but our response is, look, it'll be better if it's a good story <laughs> than a bad right. story. And, um, and so that, combined with some articles uh, that came out that said that the U.S. was thinking about using this uh, cyber sanctions order uh, to actually impose sanctions on China, I think those things 
came together to make the Chinese say, look, you know, and, and frankly, there was a lot of pressure by other countries, even though it wasn't as vocal or as public as ours, uh, saying this is a big deal, that they made the calculation this wasn't worth it for them to continue um, and that they would uh, reach this agreement. Now, we, we only have a little bit of time left, but in one major threat or challenge we have right now is you have new regimes being implemented in Europe in terms of yeah. GDPR and they're even considering additional regulation. And then you know, China also has a new cybersecurity law. Um, what, how, what was your role in, in before you left the State Department in terms of trying to kind of harmonize those regimes with U.S. law and can, and maybe push back to the extent that you know, we needed some flexibility here in the U.S. Well, I mean, part of it is showing U.S. leadership. And, and our Commerce Department, uh, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, had worked on some voluntary uh, best practices with um, with critical infrastructure that actually was very popular and well, really well received around the world. And we flogged that internationally. We talked to countries about that all the time, and, and that was a good instance of U.S. leadership. And of course, we engaged with the EU as they're doing their GDPR, and, and our companies did too. Um, but but you know, the U.S. has to lead. We can't just let a vacuum develop here. China is going to come up with cybersecurity laws, as they did, that are not just about security, but also right. about market access, frankly. But you know, if we're worried about like uh, uh, the European standards for privacy. Well, then it's incumbent on us to come up with our own standards. We talked about a privacy bill of rights. We talked about having U.S. privacy legislation that shows that we do care about these issues, and I think we do. We take a different approach. Uh, it's never going to be the same as the EU, but it's going to be one that maybe as other countries look at this, they'll say, hey, we think the U.S. approach is more flexible. But we haven't done that. We haven't led by example, and that's really important. So engaging with these other countries as they're doing these things, important, obviously, with not just our government, but our, our private sector and others, uh, but also having uh, alternatives that makes sense. You know, the EU now is um, on the verge of passing a cybersecurity act that talks about voluntary certification. Um, you know, there's some there's some uh, proposals in the U.S. Congress to do the same. But if we had that proposal out there, that could be the model rather than the EU being right. The model. But then we're not reacting. Could, yeah, we shouldn't be reacting. We should be leading. Now, a couple. Of, we only have three minutes left. A couple of quick questions. Um, when you left the State Department, did you get to keep your stapler? <laughs> Good reference. <laughs> I think I had my I have my own swing line at home. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, was, well, more more seriously, you know, we only have a few minutes left. Is there anything that you have coming up that you want to let people know about in terms of how to follow you or events yeah. you're be speaking at? Or yeah, I'm I'm doing a number of things uh, now. I'm uh, I'm a commissioner on something called the Global Commission for the Stability of Cyberspace. Uh, we're looking at norms and the stability framework, advancing some of the work that's been done by the U.S. and the U.N. and others, uh, and, and doing it in a uh, process that involves a lot of different stakeholders, including former government folks like me. Uh, we're having a, our next meeting in Singapore during Singapore Cyber Week. Uh, there'll be a lot of things going on there. I, I chair one of the working groups in something called the Global Forum for Cyber Expertise, which is about cyber capacity building. Um, we welcome <laughs> we welcome people to, especially businesses and, and governments, to be involved in that. 
Uh, I've been doing a number of uh, speaking uh, things around, uh, both around DC, but also around the world. And I'll continue doing that. But uh, usually, I, I have some stuff on this on on my Twitter account, uh, which frankly I never used before going to the State Department because as a prosecutor, you didn't really use Twitter. But it's, right, you were supposed to do it. <laughs> exactly. And uh, but we do have a, in the show notes, we do have a link to the Global Commission as well as um, the the Center for Internet Security, where you're also at. And yeah. um, to and the um, Bartles member, World board, Affairs. Yeah, I'm a board member of the the Center for Net Security, and that's a great organization. It's a nonprofit that, among other things, has talked about cyber hygiene. It's been working with some election officials, put out a great handbook on election security. Uh, really great group. Um, uh, on the I'm on the board of that, and uh, yeah, so I'm glad you have those, and I'll send you a link on the GFC, the Global Forum for Cyber. Great, we'll add that as well. And um, we only got a minute left. I really want to thank you. It's been very illuminating. Um, you, you, you know, hats off to you for your distinguished career in the government. We thank you for your service. And um, but it's been a thrill having you. Next week we have one of our earliest guests returning, Matthew Schaefer, um, who was very involved in the battle over the the Amazon tax. And uh, he was going to talk to us about the Supreme Court decision on Wayfair and what that means for online sales taxes going forward. So um, thank you again, uh, Christopher, and we'll be back next week, September 12th, with a discussion on online sales tax after Wayfair. This is Bennett Kelly. Have a great week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, 
Our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.